All right, good morning. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you. I want to say welcome to our Chinese guests as well. My daughter Hannah traveled to Wuhan uh, a month ago, and you treated her so well. So thank you for taking care of my daughter. And two of those students are staying at our house. So October and Vivian, you are welcome in our home. Thank you for taking care of Hannah. And you can't take Bubba home with you when you go to China. <laughs> Bubba stays here, okay? So he will want to go with you, but he needs to stay here. So, but you are welcome here. And I just saw Lindsay and Andre are here. Lindsay and Andre are two of our global workers. They serve in Ukraine, and you're choking me up just seeing you. It's awesome to see you here. So I should stop doing that. So it's good. So it's great to see all of you guys. Sorry, I'm not getting choked up about you two. But, um, but hey, I see you all the time. So we're good. We're good. So, wow, don't do that to me anymore. So, um, so we're in a series called Pursuing God's Heart, okay? And um, we're looking at the life of King David and some of the Psalms that he wrote. And so one of, the, one of the kind of the mottos around David is that he was a man after God's heart. And um, that's why we're studying him. We want to be a people. We want to be a church that pursues God's heart, just like David did. And uh, so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 34, And the book of Psalms is the easiest one to find in the Bible. You just open your Bible in half, and you're probably in the Psalms, okay? So turn to Psalm 34, and that's where we'll be today. And I don't know if you knew this, but about a third of the Bible is written in poetry or in song. And what's really cool about that is that I, you know, some of you right brain, left brain people, like the Bible isn't meant to just be something intellectual, not just something for your mind. But God loves it when his people cry out from their hearts. And that's what you see in the book of Psalms. And Psalm 34 especially is a very popular psalm. If you look at which psalms were quoted most in the New Testament, Psalm 34 is one of those songs. So maybe to help with your timeline, David in the book of Psalms, roughly you can think about 800 to 1000 BC. So about 1000 years later, um, when Jesus walked on the planet, Psalm 34 was one of the most sung songs, be like a Chris Tomlin song, right? It'd be like on Jesus' Spotify list, if he had Spotify. Like this would have been a song that was very popular in his day. And I think one reason Psalm 34 is so popular is that it really talks about affliction. It talks about how do you respond when things are going hard in your life? And you're gonna hear in a little bit about a very difficult time in David's life. And Psalm 34 was his eruption of his heart to God in the midst of his affliction. And so, unfortunately, I wish I could say to all of you that if you follow God or if you go to church or if you love Jesus, you will never face affliction. But that's not true. In fact, Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation. There will be many hard times. Like Jesus said, uh, if they persecuted me, guess what? They're going to persecute you too. Uh, we were talking to some 24-7 students a couple weeks ago. My wife and I were and just talking about how hard it is on campus at times and in places to identify as a Christian. And so there's those kind of adversities that can come our way today just following Jesus. But we also live in a fallen world where we get sick or where we say offensive things to people and that causes affliction in our lives or um, people sin against us and that hurts. 
um, or even just living in a fallen world where there's things like death. And just even on our ministry team here, you know, a month ago, John Page, one of our college leaders, lost his mom just suddenly. And I have been so moved by just meeting uh, his dad and just watching his dad walk through that. And then a couple weeks ago, one of our worship leaders, James, had his father die. You know, and so we're in a world where affliction is all around. And even just looking at the news this week with the tornadoes, with the boat in Missouri, with the missing Iowa student, you know, in Brooklyn, like we're just in a world that we are surrounded by affliction. And again, I think that's why Psalm 34 is such a powerful psalm, because David is going to point us to God, the God that we trust in the midst of affliction. And so let me pray, and then we're going to jump into Psalm 34 and see what God wants to teach us today as a people about dealing with affliction. So, uh, so let's pray. And how about before I pray, why don't you pray? And just if you personally are going through some affliction right now, can you ask God to teach you? Or maybe there's someone close to you, or maybe one of these incidents I just mentioned is on your heart. Could you pray that God would, would comfort someone in your life who's going through affliction. But I'll let you pray first, and then I'll pray. God, we're going to learn some amazing truths about you today. So I pray that you would speak clearly to us. And again, I don't know every situation of every person sitting here today, but you do, and you are the God of all comfort. You are the God who David, in the midst of his affliction, said, taste and see, the Lord is good. And so would you speak to your people today, God, wherever they are and whatever is on their hearts and minds, would you speak to your people? And I thank you that you love us and you love our hearts. You love to know what's going on in our hearts. So would you speak to our hearts today? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Psalm 34 you will notice kind of breaks out into two parts. The first 10 verses, um, you could put the banner over it, praise the Lord, he is good, okay? And then over the second half of the psalm, you can see maybe the banner, fear the Lord, let's learn from him, okay? And so those are the two banners. And if you have a Bible and you've opened it to Psalm 34, you'll notice that some of the psalms have a little description of the story behind the psalm, okay? And so the description of this psalm says this, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. So some of you guys are scratching your heads like, what is that all about? So we're not going to turn there, but let me just tell you the story that is right before what, what just happened in David's life before Psalm 34, okay? So so it's, this is in 1 Samuel 21. I didn't make it up, all right? So here's how it goes. So if you follow the story of David, when he was a teenager, one day he was out tending sheep. He was the youngest in his family. He got the short end of the stick. He's out with the sheep. Nobody wanted to be with the sheep. And David was there. And God was looking to pronounce his next king of Israel. And out of all of the big brothers that David had, they didn't get chosen. God chose David. And so as a young teenager, David was chosen to be the next king of God's people because God saw David's heart. 
David was a man after God's heart. And so he was chosen. But even though he was chosen to be king, he had to wait about 20 years before he actually took the throne of Israel, okay? So his career's off to a great start. As a teenager, he said, you're going to be the next king. That's awesome. And then the next thing that happened is that David killed Goliath. Goliath was a nine-foot giant that was part of this Philistine people that were God's people's enemy. And so David, this little kid, killed the giant Goliath, okay? And so that's a pretty good way to start your career, right? There you are. You kill the giant. He gets to marry the king's daughter. He's playing the harp for the king. That's good on your resume. Like, all those things are happening. Like, his life is trending up. And then, suddenly, the king's heart turned against David. The king at that time was named Saul. And Saul became jealous of David. And so David went from being at kind of the center of like everything was going great for him to now he's literally running for his life. The king and the king's army are in pursuit to kill David. And you know times are hard because the only place David could think of to go escape and to find food and shelter and safety was to a town called Gath. Guess whose hometown Gath was? Goliath. Like, so the nine-foot giant that David killed was from this town called Gath. That's where David thought, that's the safest place for me to go. You know you're going through a hard time when the, you know, whenever you kill a giant and then you have to go hang out in his home country. That's exactly what David did. That's how bad things were for David. And so David shows up, and I don't know what he thought, if he could go in kind of incognito and people wouldn't recognize him, but immediately some of the people noticed him. And they grabbed David and they brought him before their king. And they said, hey, king, remember that song the Israelites used to sing? Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. That David's here. Let's get him. So it is not looking good for David right now, right? It looks like this guy, David, is going to die in this situation. He's on the spot. What is he going to do? And I don't know that David ever did this before. I don't know where David got the idea. But what David did was he started acting like he was a crazy man. And I don't know if he grabbed some markers. Some of you guys that have little kids and they do markers all over the wall. That's what David did. He just started acting like he was going crazy. He was drawing all over the doorposts and the doors and the walls. And on top of that, he started foaming at the mouth. My dog Bubba has a foaming problem. I hope you guys don't see that. But like he just like he just started dripping and drooling from his beard and he's just acting like a crazy man. And the king finally says, That's enough. I've got enough crazy guys in my presence. I don't need another one. Get this one out of here. Crazy story. And so so Psalm 34, you can picture David like running out of this temple going, Are you kidding me? That just worked? Like I just that got me out of there? Man, God, you are awesome. And so he runs, and some people think that he ran into a cave. And then Psalm 34 just spilled out of David's heart. And so let me read the first 10 verses. And you'll see, these are some, this is some of the richest uh, section of Scripture, one of my favorite places to go to. Listen, to. listen to what David wrote. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, 
and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Guys, there's some good stuff there. That's one you want to keep reading. That's one, this is a psalm you want to know well. But as I look through that, there's a couple of things that I want us to see in those first 10 verses. Let's look at some of the qualities of God that David was clinging to in his time of adversity. Look what David learned about God. I love when David said, this humble man, this needy man cried out and God rescued me. Here's some things David knew about God. God hears us. God sees us. And God responds to us. And that God meets with us when we're in the midst of hardship. In my desperation, God, the God of the universe, met me. These truths David clung to if you see God, he will provide for you, even in the midst of your adversity, even in the midst of your tribulation. My God is good. The most common word in this psalm, in the English, uh, it just says the Lord. But if we were reading the Hebrew text, the most common word that would jump out at you would be the word Jehovah. That was the name of the loyal covenant-keeping God. That's how God identified himself to his people. I am Jehovah. I am your loyal God. I never leave you. I am always with you. And so that, that is predominant through this psalm that David said, my God is astonishing. And in the midst of my adversity, my God met me. And so a good question, or let me, one other detail about this psalm. Psalm 34 is an acrostic in the Hebrew language. That, if you don't, I, I need to be reminded what that meant too. But basically every verse starts with the next letter of the alphabet, except for verse six for some reason. Otherwise, it's like from A to Z, David is saying, my God is awesome. Let me just tell you all the ways that God is, is good and amazing. So, so a good takeaway for us right now, if we just pause, is to ask ourselves, how well do we know God? Like how well do you know God. This Psalm 34 is a good advertisement for theology, the study of God. Because it's in times of adversity when everything else you trust in is just wiped away and you're left with just you. What, it, what, what knowledge of God do you have? What qualities of God do you cling to in those times? Daniel 11.32 says, people who know their God will stand strong and will take action. So I think one takeaway we can have from this is as you look at the life of David, David knew his God. And David loved writing about his God and singing to his God. And so maybe this psalm is a good plug for us to make sure that we are regularly learning about God, studying who God is. And I would recommend the best place to start is by reading the Bible. And what I try to do on a daily basis is read, I call it fishing from three ponds. I read in three parts of the Bible, and the book of Psalms is one of those. I try to read a different psalm a day. And then I have a notebook that I keep alongside of this, because I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I can read the Bible and walk away, or I can read anything. And five minutes later, you say, what did you just read? Like, I can't remember. So anybody with me in that? Like sometimes, but there's something about when you read and then when you write, 
and then when you say it back to God, and so that's a discipline I have where I just try to look at the Bible and say, what did I just learn about God? And I write those down. And then I'll also weave in from my own life. God, I have seen this week, you have been good. You have been faithful. Um, you've been my provider. And so, and so you write those down so that you remind, and then you pray them back to God so that those truths stay in your heart so that when times of adversity come, you've got those to cling to and you're ready. Or it could also be not when you're going through hardship, but when somebody close to you is, that maybe you're the one to come and to speak truth into their lives and to remind them of the truth of who God is. So there's a discipline there that this calls us to, to be a people who know our God, okay? And if there's another discipline I can see that this calls us to, it's to be a people who praise God, who praise God publicly. Did you see where David, a couple different times, he says, um, I will bless the Lord at all times. Like, let's magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. So this is something he's calling us to do corporately, not just alone, but when we're together, let's keep reminding each other of how great God is. You know, I was just thinking this week how, how kind of foolish it is. We can praise much lesser things than God. Like today, let's be honest, like to have a 79 degree day with no humidity in Iowa, we're going to praise that. I'll bet you there's times today you'll say, man, this is awesome. This feels great. And that's cool. Like that's a gift from God to celebrate a day in the 70s in Iowa with no humidity. Like that's good. Um, Or like in the fall, well, if the Hawkeyes get off to a good start, like they should, you look at their schedule, we go, man, the Hawks are awesome. They're great. You know, so to praise the Hawkeyes, but like, why is it awkward for us? Or why are we reluctant to just praise God when we gather, like even Christians sometimes, like guys, and so what I try to do when we start meetings or start gatherings is just start with, guys, what do you see in God do? Like how has God been good? And so when you praise God, you remind others whose heads might be sinking because of adversity, you lift their eyes up to see how great and how awesome God is. And so, and so David just points us to the qualities of our deliverer, but then you also see in these first 10 verses, the response of the delivered. Like when God delivers you from affliction, just what are the things that happen in your life? With David, I think it humbled him. With David, it kept him humble. He said, this poor man cried out and God heard me. You know, if there's a reason why God might allow us to go through affliction, I think there's times he does that to remind us that we're not God. Like, and we don't have this world in control. Like we don't ha- we love to try to be in control of our lives. We don't, we're, we, do not, we do not have control of our lives. And so David learned that, and one of his responses was humility. You know, David was not a perfect man, but I think one reason God was so willing to give David the keys to kind of run the kingdom to be king is that he saw that humble heart in David, that David knew his place. Yeah, he, he sinned and he did some things wrong, but in general, David had a very humble heart before God. He knew who the real king was. Even though he was called the king, he knew there was one greater than him. And so the response we see here was a very humbled man who went to God in the midst of affliction. Uh, We don't like affliction. Like if you were to ask everybody here, hey, how would you like to go through a really hard week this week? Like how many people would sign up for that? We, We probably wouldn't, right? So, but if we got into groups today, groups of five, and just started talking, what are the five most life shaping events in your life? and we just kind of wrote those down and shared them with each other, chances are that at least two or three of those are going to be really hard times that we've gone through. And yet when you look back, you see those are times where God taught us amazing things. And so the response of 
David, as he's delivered, is that he saw God more clearly, and God rescued him, and God provided for him, all right? So there's a book I read a couple years ago. It's called The Survivor's Club. It's written by a guy named Ben Sherwood. He used to write for the New York Times. He's not a Christian. I think he's an atheist. Uh, but he did, a, he did a research project on the people who survive tragedies. So like when there's an avalanche and a whole village gets wiped out, but two people survive. Or when a plane crashes and everybody dies, but one guy, you know, something like that. He did research on who are the survivors, who tends to survive. So in plane crashes, the people just statistically who tend to survive are the younger, those in shape, and those within 12 rows of the exit, all right? So he also, some of the other statistics he found is that right-handed people tend to outlive left-handed people, that there's a right-handed bias in our world. I'm so sorry I'm right-handed. I didn't mean to do that to anybody left-handed here, but, but those are just, he looked at all the statistical analysis. But by far, the number one predictor of survivor, of being a survivor in a tragedy this blew him away because he's an atheist and he wasn't looking for this, is faith in God. Like 75 to 80% of the survivors pointed first to their faith in God as what helped them through. In fact, he quotes a guy, this guy named Ray Smith, who wrote a document for the military called How to Survive on Land and Sea. And he trained a lot of famous ex-POWs and that kind of thing. And this Ray Smith says that clearly that in all survival scenarios, the number one factor, the first chapter in any book on survival needs to be about faith in God. It multiplies strength and endurance. And David found that to be true, that the result in his life was through affliction and through in God meeting him in affliction, he was a stronger man. He cried out and God heard him and God rescued him, all right? So the first half, David is saying, God is good. I have learned that even in the midst of affliction, God is good. And so now in the second half, you you get the tone here that David is gonna kind of gather us together because he wants to teach us now some things. Here's even some more specific things I want you to learn about God and about things he has taught me. So verse 11, he says, come children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and who loves many days that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Let me capture a word for us for a second. When you read in the Bible, fear the Lord, fear the Lord, I don't think God wants us leaving today like in a constant like hunched over position waiting for him to just smash us because he's mad at us. That's not the picture. The fear of the Lord means to be, I like the word awe, to be in awe of how great, how holy, how strong, how good, how gracious God is. Like all of God's character, when we see him, just should blow us away. Like the fear of the Lord is so important. The the Proverbs say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Like if you wanna live your life wisely, you need to make sure that of all other pursuits in your life, you are most amazed at God because he is so great and he is so good. Nothing comes close. And so when David is saying here, um, I, I want you to fear the Lord, that's what he means. He says, I want you to be in awe of God. I want you to be in awe of how great he is and, and be in awe of his ways. That's why you turn from evil and you do good. You strive to please him because God's ways are way better than our ways. He is astonishing. And what's, what's interesting is that David's response there is not typical in our world. 
We live in a world where when affliction comes, sometimes God is the first one we blame. Like not, not go to for instruction, but we'll blame him. We'll point a finger at him. I heard a couple weeks ago about, um, it was some kind of progressive, kind of anti-God kind of group in Australia that ran a campaign and all the buses in Australia had these posters on them that said this, if God exists, he better have a good excuse, okay? If God exists, he better have a good excuse. And that was actually a quote from Woody Allen. So what's interesting though, is if you look at like, what are the most prosperous countries in the world? Australia is usually in the top two, three, at least five. Like you would think out of all the countries in the world, if you lived in Australia, that's actually, things are going pretty well. Or if you look at Woody Allen, the guy that quoted that, made that quote, like out of all the people that have ever lived, is there anybody that's been as talented or successful or you know, uh, affluent? Like there's, his life has been so good. And yet from his mind and now put all over buses in Australia, that concept, God, if you exist, you better have a good excuse. So blaming God when things are going wrong. And what's really interesting is sometimes in our world, there's a completely different response to suffering and hardship in the two-thirds world the parts of the world where people live on $2 a day or less. For example, in the country of Haiti, I read about this a couple weeks ago too, that in the country of Haiti in 2011, when the earthquake hit and killed, I think 200,000 people just right away, and 1.3 million people were homeless because of that earthquake, the next Sunday, the churches in Haiti were packed. And in Baptist churches alone, 400,000 Haitians began to follow Jesus, like in the midst of horrific affliction and suffering. And David is saying the same, like in my affliction, I'm running to God. I'm not running from him. I'm not shaking my my fist at him, but I am running to him because he is amazing and he is teaching me so many things. And so here's some things that he learned. Verse 15 says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their trouble. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Powerful things that are just blowing David away. How could the creator of this whole universe come so close to me in the midst of my affliction? How could he draw near? Guys, that verse 18 um, is, is, especially for me in the last couple months, has been a powerful one to share and to pray for those that you know are going through affliction. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. I've been praying specifically, God, very tangibly, just make whoever it is I'm praying for, just know your presence. Because God, you promise you draw near to people with broken hearts. So David is amazed that in the midst of his hardship, God is drawing near. God is present with him. C.S. Lewis is a famous Christian author who for many years kind of resisted God. And he was a man that went through a lot of pain in his life. When he was a child, his mother died. And somewhere around the same time, his father emotionally just distanced himself from C.S. Lewis. Somewhere along the line, he picked up some kind of respiratory disease. He was injured in World War I. And then later in his life, his wife died. So just, you talk about grief and hardship just piled on this man. And yet in his newfound faith in God, he wrote some of the most profound 
things that Christians today are still clinging to. Some of his most famous statements have to deal with, with, with pain and how we respond. And his, one of his famous quotes is this, where God, he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. God speaks to us in our conscience, but God shouts to us in our pain. It is, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That sometimes God allows hardship and allows adversity so that he can remind us of his presence and of his comfort. And David is blown away by that. God, how would you draw near to me in my broken heart right now? How would such a great God care that much about me? But David says, you need to learn this, people. Let's learn that God draws near to us when our hearts are broken. And finally, the last couple of verses, he says, uh, many are the afflictions of the righteous. David is saying the same thing that Jesus said that even if you're following God, you will have affliction. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. If you look at those last couple verses, it seems like what what adversity does is it kind of reveals two destinies that a person is heading toward, that it's our hardship when we're facing hard times to just kind of cut to the chase. What's going to happen to us? Where is our life headed? And did you notice one of those was not a good place, that those who hate the righteous will be condemned, that our affliction can reveal to us that we really have a hopelessness and a despair, that our life is not really headed anywhere. It reminds me of Richard Dawkins, the atheist who's speaking about this whole problem of suffering in the world, he said this, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we would expect if there is no design, no purpose, no good, no evil, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Suffering is natural, it is inevitable, there is nothing we can do about it. We are hopeless and powerless. Like if you remove God from the equation and you just say, we live in a world that just there's evil and you can't do anything about it, you're gonna suffer, have a great day. Like that's, that's basically, you know, the, descript- the prescription here is that's a life headed to destruction. But there's an alternative. There's a life that leads to redemption. That no matter what we're going through, whatever our affliction or hardship is, there's a God who can redeem that hardship. That that hardship is not wasted that that hardship is not the end of the story for us, but there's a better story, there's a good story, there's a hope in the midst of our hardship. And you go, well, what in the world could that be? Like how, how you know, David's talking about, you know, God sustained him and he got away from a king when he acted like he had a foamy beard and wrote on the walls, but like, but, but really, what are you talking about? Like what's the ultimate deliverance that God is offering us? What can really give us a hope? And I hope you noticed uh, there's kind of a strange verse tucked away around verse, verse 20 where, where David said that he keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. And so I don't know if that triggers anything if you remember reading in the New Testament about Jesus. So if you fast forward from the time of David and look ahead about a thousand years to the time of Jesus, there was a time where God himself came to earth in the form of a human we, name, we call him Jesus, and he lived a perfect life. He entered into our sinful world, and he obeyed his father, and his plan, the father's plan, was to deal with our affliction, with our sin, with death, by having his son Jesus die on a cross for us. And so 
Jesus did not deserve death, but he died on a cross taking our place. He took our sin uh, on himself and he died and then he rose again from the dead to prove that he has victory over the greatest affliction we'll ever face. That's our own sin and the death we deserve. Jesus defeated that, all right? What's really interesting is that there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that talk about the crucifixion of Jesus. In John 19, the apostle John describes Jesus' body was on the cross and that he died. And so sometimes to make sure the person on the cross was dead, they would break their legs so that they couldn't push up anymore to breathe. And so if they broke the legs, that would make sure that person would die. When they got to Jesus, they did not break his legs. He was already dead. And in that instant, John quoted Psalm 34. So John 19, 36, John said, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, that not one of his bones will be broken. I think what God is doing for us there is he's drawing a line between the promise he made to David in Psalm 34, that God will redeem his people going through affliction. He drew a line for us a thousand years later to Jesus Christ hanging on the cross for us, dying for us, taking away our ultimate affliction, sin and death. And because Jesus rose again from the dead, that means any affliction we face will be temporal. And there will be a time where our lives, our stories, our hardships will be redeemed. Just like Jesus ascended uh, and is now in heaven forever, that's the same promise for us as well. And so what's amazing, if you wanna know, what does Psalm 34 look like if it was lived out like in a real story? You look at the life of Jesus. He is the epitome of Psalm 34. And so what does it look like to have God come alongside you in a time of affliction? You look at, you look at the life of Jesus. Let me give you one story from Jesus' life. In John chapter 11, uh, Jesus had a very close, had some friends. They were all brothers and sisters. Lazarus was the brother. Mary and Martha were the sisters. And Lazarus died. Jesus' very close friend died. And it was an interesting story. Um, Jesus was told that Lazarus was sick. And so if Jesus had gone right away, he could have healed Lazarus. But it says that Jesus waited four days. And so when he got to the funeral, when he got to the home and Lazarus was dead, Jesus was met by both Martha and Mary, the two sisters. And they both asked him the same question. And they said the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And what's really interesting, if you want to see how does God walk with us through affliction, he gave two different responses. To Martha, when she said, Jesus, if you'd have been here, um, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And Jesus engaged her in a conversation and he asked her a question and he um, gave her some truth that she could cling to. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he will live. Do you believe this? So he taught Martha about, hey, there's, gonna be, there's death, but there's gonna be a resurrection. Not just he knew he was gonna heal Lazarus in a few minutes, but also speaking of his own death and resurrection. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I can overcome this death. Do you believe that? So that was his conversation with Martha. But just a few minutes later, when Mary comes to him and says the same thing, Jesus, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. You know what? Jesus didn't kind of say the same thing to her. He responded to Mary differently. He walked with Mary to the tomb. And in verse 33, it says, when they got there, Jesus was angry. He was angry. 
at, at this death. He was angry at the grief that this death was causing. Even though he was going to raise Lazarus in a couple minutes, like even just for a day or two, Lazarus being dead made Jesus angry. And then two verses later is where it says that Jesus wept. Jesus cried. He was sorry. He was sorrowful about the death that happened. Again, he's going to raise him in a little bit, but he's still moved with, with grief. And isn't that a powerful picture of how God wants to walk alongside us in the midst of whatever we're going through? There may be times where you've got questions and he wants to teach you the truth about who he is and that we can trust him. But there's times you don't need answers. You just need, you just need a presence with you. You just need the comfort of somebody who is angry with you at the situation and who is also just sad with you at the conversation. We have, the Bible calls God the God of all comforts. We have a picture there of how Jesus walks with his people through affliction. So, uh, so we can be a people who walked just like David did through his. We could be a people, like you, you may have read Psalm 34 as I was reading it and said, man, there's no way I could say that today. There's no way today I could say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you know what I'm going through right now? And so God understands all that, but, but the picture of what Jesus came to do, how he died, rose again from the dead, and how Jesus walks with us through our times of affliction should be a massive encouragement to you. Um, I had a guy ask me last night, a guy just is going through some intense time right now of just grieving, and he just asked me, am I doing this right? And I, I said, I don't think there's a right right now. Just, just know that God is walking with you, and there's days you're going to be mad. There's days you're not going to understand. There's days you're going to be very sad. But what you do need to know is that God is walking with you and that there's hope on the other end of this, that, that there is resurrection on the other end of this, that God has defeated our greatest enemies of sin and death, and God is walking with you. So there will be a day that you can write a Psalm 34 of your own and just say, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so what all this means for us as a church and as a people is that we do not need to be a people who just live in constant fear, who cower about, oh no, when's the next bad thing gonna happen to me? Or when's... We do not need to live that way. We can live completely differently. We can live as a people who have hope even in the midst of grieving. We can live as a people who are confident because we're not in control of our lives. We have no idea what's gonna happen this week, but we do know the God who is in control and we can trust him and know that he is good because he has defeated our greatest enemies. He has defeated our greatest adversity. And as we walk through adversity, he promises to walk with us and to comfort us. And I wanted to close today reading some verses in Romans that just underscore this very powerfully. So let's stand together and read from Romans 8 together. May we be the kind of church, may we be the kind of people that can live out these truths right here. So let's read them out loud together. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, may we be a people that don't just read that in a service, but a people that live that. And I thank you that this isn't just wishful thinking, but these things are absolutely true. These are rooted in the historical fact that Jesus, you really lived, you really died, you really rose again from the dead, and you really right now live in heaven, and that you walk with your people regardless of what we're walking through today. And so God, I pray in very profound ways that you would draw near to broken hearts in this room. God, which I don't know every story you do. So would you walk closely with and encourage those who are going through hard times today? And God, would you then also empower us to be a people who are willing to go and be alongside those who are brokenhearted? Will you use us to be people who bring comfort, who bring hope, and who bring truth, who ultimately point people to the gospel? Jesus, you died you rose again, and any of us who believe in you will have eternal life, have nothing to fear, will never be separated from the love of God. You are amazing. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.